Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, what I'm doing, I am continuing my re-examination of the short story collections from Stephen King throughout the decades, because the first time around, when I first began the Stephen King cast and started working my way through the chronological order of publication, I did review, technically, the... Uh, short story collections. I just didn't review every story in every collection. So now that I have the opportunity, I've gotten through his his catalog of books and short stories and the collections. Now what I'm able to do, I'm able to go back to those collections and then review the short stories that I didn't get around to the first time. So that's what we're doing today. Um, I am turning my attention to the 2000s um, collection of short stories, Everything's Eventual. So I'm going to just get right to it, guys. No um, iTunes reviews this week, no emails this week, but feel free. If you do have emails and iTunes reviews, um, well, if, I'm sorry, if you do want to leave a review on iTunes, head on over um, to Stephen Kingcast on iTunes, leave a review. It really helps me out. And at any point, if you have any thoughts on anything regarding Stephen King, um, your, your expectations and hopes for Hulu's upcoming Castle Rock series, what your thoughts are on Mr. Mercedes, thoughts on, on casting for It Chapter 2, um, you know, The Outsider will be coming out by Stephen King, um, your thoughts on Sleeping Beauties, anything, anything that has anything to do with Stephen King that includes Joe Hill, Owen King, wh- whatever you want. Or in the, the realm of, of horror, um, feel free to, to drop me a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. But I'm not going to be reviewing any emails today, which means I'm going to get right to it, um, beginning with the short story, All That You Love Will Be Carried Away. And I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so we have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Alfie Zimmer, a traveling salesman peddling gourmet frozen foods, pulls into a Motel 6 in Nebraska for the night. He settles in and pulls out a revolver, ready to commit suicide because he can't go living the way he had been living. Alfie has a hobby of recording strange bathroom graffiti, which he has discovered on many long, lonely travels. He starts noting down scrawls on the walls that attracted his attention, gradually becoming fascinated with them. During his solitary travels, he has come to regard these voices on the walls as his friends. Something to think about during the long drive, something precious and important, something that spoke to him. Alfie decides that a shot in the mouth is easier than any living change, but every time he puts the gun into his mouth, he worries that leaving the notebook filled with bizarre ramblings behind will make him seem insane to whoever finds his body. Alfie wants to write a book about the graffiti, even coming up with the great title, but knows the telling would hurt. While standing in the freezing cold of the winter's night, sobbing to himself, Alfie decides on a plan. If the lights of a farmhouse behind the motel reappear through the snow before he counts to 60, he will write the book. If not, he will toss the notebook into the snow, then go inside and shoot himself. Story closes with Alfie standing near the field outside the motel, starting to count, thus leaving the ending to the imagination. Though the ending was changed due to the request of a magazine publisher, no one knows the true ending except for them and King. My review. Sometimes King presents a horrific portrait of terror. But with stories like All That You Love Will Be Carried Away, he gives you a tight character study. In this case, we get a look at Alfred Zimmer, the traveling salesman, and what could be of one of King's loneliest stories. Its subject matter is both tragic and humorous. A man about to commit suicide will never not be sad, but the fact that it's nestled in the observations of bathroom graffiti is delightfully specific. 
We, not, we might not be able to latch on to the state of depression resulting in suicidal ideation, but we've all seen bathroom poetry and sage-like wisdom scrawled on the walls while we've used the toilet. So by giving us a character whose only source of passion and friendship comes from these writings both makes us chuckle while reinforcing that sense of loneliness. His only true companion are the left-behind markings of strangers who once shared a stall with him. That's both wonderfully human and truly depressing. And it's his knack for details that make the story pop. For instance, when he equates shredded rubber on a highway to the state in which he now finds himself. His struggle to commit suicide is as harrowing as anything he's ever given us, with his only chance at redemption coming from the graffiti book. He'd write it, but who would read it? Linking the writing process, or more specifically, the doubts from the writing process, to the content found within a bathroom is a clever way of a writer's concern that the quality of their writing is, wait for it, shitty. My only problem with the story is that of all the examples of graffiti, he never included the following. Bango Skank was here. Stephen Kingism's Bool. Uh, this strange phrase is spotted on a bathroom wall and is one of King's catchphrases seen in Lisey's story. Number two, bathroom observations. King is able to take the bathroom and make it come alive, as he has done in The Night Flyer, The Moving Finger, The Shining, Dreamcatcher, and others. He isn't afraid to shy away from placing his characters in a setting whereupon we meet our most basic needs. Um, traveling salesman. We've seen the traveling salesman before. Not specifically this one, but um, archetypes uh, most recently in Chattery Teeth. Up next, we have The Death of Jack Hamilton. The story is written in the first person. Homer Van Meter, member of John Dillinger's gang, tells of the slow, painful death of the fellow gang member Jack Hamilton. Van Meter begins by describing Dillinger's death outside the Biograph Theater at the hands of FBI agent Melvin Purvis's men, as well as addressing the theory that it wasn't actually Dillinger who was killed. Van Meter debunks the theories, citing that the causes for arguments happened during witnessing the death of Jack Hamilton. During his getaway from a shootout at the Little Bohemia Lodge in Wisconsin, Hamilton is shot by police, the bullet lodged in his lung, eventually creating a gruesome case of gangrene. Hamilton is refused treatment by Joseph Moran, and Van Meter and Dillinger take Hamilton to stay at the home of Volney Davis and his girlfriend Rabbits, two members of Ma Barker's gang, as well as Ma's sons Arthur. King's narration spares no detail as the man lapses into dementia before his agonizing but merciful expiration. My review. So, I'm glad that King writes these type of stories. It's clear that stories like this and The Last Quarter, Dolan's Cadillac, these are passion projects for him. Though he might be a horror writer, the man loves his crime stories. Um, and if writing them means it keeps his mental blade sharp, then I'm all for it. Um, but personally, try as I might, and this is my fault as a reader, um, I, I tend to zone out with these stories. As I said in my review of uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I, I loved revisiting that story, but with this historical piece of fiction, I just couldn't get into it. Certainly, I couldn't get into it um, to provide a significant opinion, or any opinion, truly, for that matter. I, I try and keep my reviews as objective as possible, but there's only so much objectivity you can possess. I mean... If you don't personally prefer, prefer horror stories, you'd be hard-pressed to be objective when reviewing them. Same here for me with this type of crime story. I, I, I just can't plug in. It's well-written, it's got great character work, but it just fails to hold my interest. Whether that's because of my personal bias or his inability to hook me with these types of stories, I can't say. Maybe a little bit of both. Up next, we have In the Death Room from Wikipedia. Fletcher, a former reporter for the New York Times, has been captured by members of a South American dictatorship. 
story begins as he is brought in the titular death room for interrogation about an allegedly communist insurgency, which he has been supporting due to the government's killings of a group of nuns, which included his sister. Fletcher realizes that his captors, despite their promises to the contrary, will not let him leave the room alive. During the course of the interrogation, Fletcher manages to keep calm and hatches a desperate plan to escape, which, to his surprise, actually works. He fakes an epileptic seizure, and the captor struggles to save him, steals a gun. After killing three of his captors and maiming one, he escapes the death room. Fletcher, having no way of knowing if the gunfire was heard, starts up the stairs to see if he can escape. The story ends with a man, almost certainly Fletcher, buying a pack of cigarettes at a newsstand kiosk in New York. Review With a story about something called the Death Room, King had to paint a picture for it to work, and he manages to do this in spades. From right off the jump, he's able to create a sense of palpable dread. In fact, it's reminiscent of the feelings invoked within Eli Roth's hostile movie, not without his faults, but when it's time to make you feel vulnerable and helpless, he does just that. This is a tight, tense, claustrophobic thriller that places you squarely in Fletcher's predicament. Riffs on tropes that you might have seen a thousand times, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't make you sweat. And King makes this his own because he's able to place you in the mind of Fletcher with such clarity from passages like the following. Fletcher waited, I'm sorry, Fletcher watched them and waited, knowing that the woman was telling Escobar he was lying. Soon, Heinz would have more data for his paper, certain preliminary observations on the administration and consequences of electrifying the shit out of reluctant interrogation subjects. Fletcher discovered that the terror had created two new people inside him, at least two sub-Fletchers with their own useless but quite powerful views on how this was going to go. One was sadly hopeful, the other just sad. The sadly hopeful one was Mr. Maybe They Will, as in maybe they really will let me go. Maybe there really is a car parked out in the street 5th of May, just around the corner. Maybe they really mean to kick me out of the country. Maybe I really will be landing in Miami tomorrow morning, scared but alive, with this already beginning to seem like a bad dream. The other one, the one that was merely sad, was Mr. Even If I Do. Fletcher might be able to surprise them by making a sudden move. He had been beaten, and they were arrogant, so yes, he might be able to surprise them. But Ramon will shoot me, even if I do. If you went for Ramon, managed to get his gun? Unlikely but not impossible, the man was fat, fatter than Escobar by at least 30 pounds, and he wheezed when he breathed. Escobar and Heinz would be all over me before I shoot, even if I do. The woman, too. Maybe, she talked about moving her lips, she might know judo or karate or taekwondo as well. And if he shot them all and managed to escape this room, there'll be more guards everywhere if I do. They'll hear the shots and come running. Of course, rooms like this tended to be soundproof, for obvious reasons. But even if he got up the stairs and out the door and onto the street, that was only the beginning. And Mr. Even If I Do would be running with him the whole way, for however long his run lasted. The thing was... Neither Mr. Maybe They Will or Mr. Even If I Do could help him. They were only distractions. Lysa's increasingly frantic mind tries to tell itself. Men like him did not talk to themselves out of rooms like this. He might as well try inventing a third sub-Fletcher. Mr. Maybe I Can and go for it. He had nothing to lose. He only had to make sure that they didn't know he knew that. Up next, we have LT's Theory of Pets. This story is told from the first-person perspective about a working-class husband who recalls a story by L.T., a chatty co-worker who recalls the brewing trouble behind his marriage, attributed to the pets purchased by L.T. and his wife. 
His wife purchased a dog for LT, which in turn disliked him instantly and sided with the wife while LT purchased a cat for his wife, who immediately took to LT. Instead, despite the fact that the dog and the cat got along fine, LT and his wife continuously argue, adding some irony. LT's wife then leaves him and says she had gone to her mother's, but she never arrives. King reveals that she had taken the dog with her and that her car had been found abandoned on a roadside in Nevada. The only thing found was her dog axed to death. It's revealed that a serial killer is on the loose in the area who kills women by use of an axe known as the Axe Man. LT still has hopes she is alive, though it's unlikely. My review, um, I'm, I can't really say much about it, so I'm going to just read what King said about it. I guess if I have a favorite in this collection of stories, LT would be it. The origin of the story, as far as I can remember, was a Dear Abby column, where Abby opined that a pet is just about the worst sort of present one can give anyone. It makes the assumption that the pet and the recipient will hit it off, for one thing. It assumes the feeding of an animal twice a day and cleaning up its messes, both indoors and out, was the very thing you had been pining to do. So as far as I can remember, she called the giving of pets an exercise in arrogance. I think that's laying it on a bit thick. My wife gave me a dog for my 40th birthday, and Marlo, a corgi who's now 14 and has only one eye, has been an honored part of the family ever since. During five of those years, we also had a rather crazed Siamese cat named Pearl. It was while watching Marlo and Pearl interact, which they did with a kind of cautious respect, that I first started thinking about a story where the pets in a marriage would imprint not upon the nominal owner of each other, but on the other. I had a marvelous time working on it, and whenever I'm called to read a story out loud, this is the one I choose, always assuming I have the required 50 minutes it takes. It makes people laugh, and I like that. What I like more is the unexpected shift in tone, away from humor and towards sadness and horror, which occurs near the end. When it comes, the reader's defenses are down, and the story's emotional payoff is a little higher. For me, that emotional payoff is what it's all about. I want to make you laugh or cry. Um... Or cry when you do read a story or do 265 both at the same time. I want your heart, in other words. If you want to learn something, go to school. This is an important little story because King is clearly an animal lover. If you follow him on social media, a constant presence is Molly, the thing of evil. Again, it harkens back to why we love King as much as we do. We feel we know him. He feels like an actual human being. And if you take the SK tours with Stu and Bangor, you'll get a better understanding of his down-to-earthiness. Being an animal lover and owner is certainly one of these reasons, and with a story like this, he's able to get at the heart of an owner's relationship with their pets, while musing on marriage as well. He'll later go on to give us the definitive examination of marriage through the darkest lens possible in a good marriage, but here he starts to dip his toes into that pool while exploring our relationship with the animals we take into our homes and lives. It's no coincidence that a serial killer also factors into a story about marriage as it does in a good marriage. This is King, gearing up for his next go-around. And like King says, this is funny. You know that I've often criticized King for making his characters howl with laughter at really unfunny jokes. But when he wants to write a comedy, he manages to pull it off. Um, Both here and most recently, Drunken Fireworks and The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, he's been able to give us legitimately funny moments. The note that Lulu leaves LT is a perfect encapsulation of who her character is. And with that note, he propels the story forward while simultaneously building up a very rich character. This is a loaded story, both simultaneously light and weighty, with one, at least one Stephen King-ism, which is AA, LT is an AA, and this is something that we see from characters throughout his works. Then we have that feeling, you can only say what it is in French, Wikipedia. 
As the story progresses, the woman begins to remember skeletons from the closet, starting as financially trapped newlyweds who went on to greater things with her husband's eventual success in the computer industry. It is implied, though never really explicitly revealed, that the man and the woman have been killed in a mid-airplane collision who are suffering eternal torment. Review. Here is an example of how King is able to take a concept that we are all familiar with and build a story around it. A missing object around the house, or the ability to sleep with an insomnia. Man's best friend in Cujo. The list goes on. I've made this list so many times in so many different episodes. But he makes it so that you can't look at an object or think about a particular concept the same way again after he's played with it. That certainly is the case with that feeling. You can only say what it is in French, which, by the way, is a fantastic title. But by playing with Deja Vu, the wonderful and strange little sensation that we've all had makes you wonder if in that moment you're actually dead or on a loop like our characters here. We've all asked, what is Deja Vu really? Well, here he gives us an answer. It's hell. And here, again, we get another examination of marriage. In fact, the concept is more about the state of marriage than it is about the concept of Deja Vu. And it's a perfect snapshot of marriage, too. After all, after so many years together, routines get so firmly entrenched that the days can very easily seem the same. And for our character, after 25 years of that, it feels like hell. Now, by all accounts, King has been in what appears to be a happy marriage for decades, a marriage that has weathered his addictions, his near death, has yielded three children and grandchildren, so it seems that things worked out for him and Tabitha, or more importantly, he and Tabitha made it work. But there's a truth to these stories about marriage, and this is why they're so potent. So we have a couple Stephen Kingisms. One, the unlucky traveling couple. We have seen this before with Children of the Corn. Desperation. You know they've got a hell of a band. If you are a couple in a Stephen King story, watch out. Um, the second Stephen Kingism is marriage. LT's theory of pets. Lisey's story, a good marriage, and others. Easter eggs. Hell is repetition. I would have included this in the Stephen Kingisms because it's more of a theme carried over from Storm of the Century, but he straight up quotes it again in the afterword to the story, so I'm including it here. Up next, we have Riding the Bullet from Wikipedia. Alan Parker is a student at the University of Maine who is trying to find himself. He gets a call from a neighbor in his hometown of Lewiston, Maine, telling him that his mother has been taken to the hospital after having a stroke. Lacking a functioning car, Parker decides to hitchhike up the 120 um, to the 120 miles south to visit his mother. His first ride is with an old man who continually tugs at his crotch in a car that stinks of urine. Eventually frightened and glad to escape the vehicle, Alan starts walking, thumbing his next ride. Coming up upon a graveyard, he begins to explore and notices a headstone for a stranger named George Staub. In German, Staub means dust, which reads, Well begun, too soon done. Sure enough, the next car to pick him up is George Staub, complete with black stitches around his neck where his head had been sewn after being severed and wearing a button saying, I rode the bullet at the Thrill Village, Laconia. During the ride, George talk, talks to Alan about the amusement park ride he was too scared to ride as a kid, the bullet in Thrill Village, Laconia, New Hampshire. George tells Alan before they reach the lights of town, Alan must choose who goes on the death ride with George, Alan or his mother. In a moment of fright, Alan saves himself and tells him, Take her, take my mother. George shoves Alan out of the car. Alan reappears alone at the graveyard, wearing the I rode the bullet at Thrill Village button. He eventually reaches the hospital, where he learns, despite his guilt and the impending feeling that his mother is dead or will die at any moment, she is fine. Alan takes the button and treasure and treasures it as good or bad luck charm. 
His mother returns to work and to smoking. Alan graduates and takes care of his mother for several years, and she suffers another stroke. One day, Alan loses the button and receives a phone call. He knows what the call is about. He finds the button underneath his mother's bed, and after a final moment of sadness, guilt, and meditation, decides to carry on. My review. With so many of these stories not actually being horror, it's nice to get a throwback spooky story from the master of the genre. Here's the deal, though. I did not like this story when it first came out. Maybe because it was an ebook, maybe because of the, all the hoopla around it, whatever the reason. Any issue that I had to do with it had to do with me and not the story. Because rereading it makes it perfectly clear that this is a wonderful short story. One of his best, actually. Um, that's saying a lot. And it's a great return to form of the classic EC-styled horror. The imagery alone is worth reading. The fat, bloated moon, the mist creeping between the cemetery tombstones as Alan makes his way down the road. King paints a picture, and it's a familiar, but it's a welcome one. He's creating a classic ghost story in the modern age. And when George Staub picks him up, King lays on the dread, with the primal understanding from Alan's mind that something is wrong, capital W. The scene plays out spectacularly, with these little details making it more potent than it has any right to be. From the color of moonlight in his eyes to the tendrils of cigarette smoke that drift through the stitches in his neck, King places us firmly in the passenger seat along with Alan. And when the charade is over, the conflict begins. Alan has to make a choice. Who is going to accompany the undead driver, Alan or his mother? And what are the choices he has to make? The reader is caught in the shameful guilt right along with Alan. How could he? How dare he? How dare he choose his own life over his mother's? But who can say that they would answer when faced with the same choice? when your own life has barely just begun. Regardless, what comes next is unexpected and sweet. His mother doesn't die. Instead, she continues to live her life, and Alan does not take her for granted. Stephen Kingisms. Hitchhiking. We've seen it before in Nona and Chattery Teeth and other stories. The Moon. We've seen this in Wizarding Glass, Regulators, and others. The catchphrase, fun is fun and done is done. This is on George Staub's tombstone. The catchphrase is a... Um, well-seen Stephen Kingism. Car crash. Come on. Again, we have a car crash that features prominently in this story. Number five, we have a supernatural creature taunting a character with the death of a family member. <laughs> it's very specific, but um, this was seen in The Man in the Black Suit. That immediately springs to mind. We have mothers and sons. Larry and his mother, Jack Sawyer and Lily Cavanaugh, Queen of the Bees. Um, we have some Easter eggs. Um, Harlow, Castle Rock, and Castle View are all mentioned. Up next, we have Lucky Quarter from Wikipedia. Darlene Pullen, who is a struggling single mother with two children, a rebellious teenage daughter and sickly young son, um, and a lousy job as a maid, is left a tip of a single quarter with a note saying that's a lucky quarter. She takes a quick gamble on it and finds that it brings some small luck. Moving on to a real casino, she keeps trying her luck, and soon she's winning thousands of dollars. All seems to go, be going exceedingly well until she suddenly reappears back in the hotel room with nothing but her lucky quarter. All of her success was a fantasy. As her two children come to visit her at work, she lets her son have the quarter, and he uses it in a gamble. It starts to pay off just as it did when Darlene was fantasizing. So I don't really have much to say. I think that's a nice companion piece um, to um, 
writing the bullet actually because this is more from the perspective of the mother whereas writing the bullet was from the perspective of the son um and it's it's sort of giving back to the to the other person so um but uh, other than that it's you know i mean lucky quarter is what it is i don't really feel too strongly about it Okay, guys, that's all that I have for this week. Um, coming in at under half an hour, this was a, a mean, lean, tight review of the, uh, the, the the collection of short stories, Everything's Eventual. So um, if you want to hear my thoughts on the all the other collections of, of short stories from Everything's Eventual, um, all you have to do is just seek out that uh, the, the first podcast I had done. Um, with that so all right guys thank you for for listening today um and next week i will be reviewing uh the short stories that i didn't get around to the first time with just after sunset okay so um may you have long days and pleasant nights and i will see you here next time where m-o-o-n spells stephen kinkast